We are here for our last Wednesday night study. We are going to be looking at the last, the final verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6. And uh, I thought uh, I would just spend a little bit of time as we're kind of wrapping this up, uh, just discussing why a book like this has value and importance today. Um, I think it's just good for us to stop and say, how does this fit into uh, the life of the church? How does this fit into to our own lives? Um, one of the things it's easy for me to do is to just write down the first reason why uh, First Timothy has value or substance. Can you turn me down just a little bit, Steve? We could say that the reason why it matters and the reason why we need to study it because it's God's word, duh. Like, why wouldn't we want to study it? And I agree, it is God's word. And actually, we find in Timothy uh, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's literally uh, the word that God has breathed and that, that God has created. So obviously has value and worth. And so we look at it, and um, the church thought that, boy, this, this has value and this has worth to the community of faith. But you know, we could say, listen, we, we appreciate it for this, but how does this particular word from God have some instruction to us? And so one of the big things that we get from this book that we don't get from many of the others is the leadership issues that this book does a great job describing. I'm not saying it's the only one. Titus also talks to this, Second or First Peter talks a little bit to this. Um, but other than that, the majority of the books, the book of Romans and the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians, uh, doesn't really address it as clearly as, as uh, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus does. And so we really get an opportunity as the Apostle Paul describes what elders look like and what elders do, as well as deacons in terms of what they look like and what deacons do. And these become a big part of what the church looks like um, when we move from the time when the Apostle Peter speaks and the church is born, okay, now what we do, we, we have to raise this baby that has been born, and so now we have to help it grow, and we've got to be parents to it, and we've got to help it mature, and then it needs to pass on to the next generation, to the next generation. In order to do that, we need leaders, and so the Apostle Paul uh, follows the instruction that we see in the book of Acts um, and everywhere he sends uh, people, whether it would be Timothy or Titus, uh, or he and uh, Silas himself, wherever they go, they appoint leaders in certain towns that they might protect the church, that they might continue to preach the gospel and to make sure that the poor are taken care of and a number of different key things. And so the leadership piece becomes uh, a very essential part of this particular book. And then the last thing, um, I would say that there is quite a bit in terms of just rules for godly living. It has, I think, because of its connection, i.e., um, Paul to Timothy. When you read it, it has a lot of um, uh, personal feel to it, where the Apostle Paul is giving some very specific instructions. So even though you and I might not be able to relate exactly to a statement where uh, we're dealing with false teachers or a particular statement where we're dealing with how do we care for widows, that might be a little bit outside of, um, of, of what you and I might be doing on kind of our a regular basis, but he does spend a lot of time talking about godly living and what that looks like and how uh, we maintain our faith and how we persevere through difficult times and difficult circumstances, how we avoid 
careless talking and how we avoid careless doctrine. And so there's a lot of general things that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy on just godly living issues. And so for that reason there, it is really, really helpful for us to come alongside of it and see it. And then we also, one of the things that I love about looking at particular Bible books is it helps us get kind of a broader sense of how God loves and cares for his people. Um, So sometimes when we look at one particular book or if we only stay in Even my favorites are probably easily the Gospels. If we always stay in the Gospels, we fail to see the working out of what the Gospel story, uh, the fact that Jesus Christ came and established his kingdom and it continues to grow, what does that originally look like and then how does it develop and then what does it look like in ongoing generations? And when we look at the uh, kind of the the wide spectrum of, of Scripture, what you and I are blessed to actually see is how God is beginning it, developing it, growing it, and handing it off. And then you and I get to do the wrestling with it. How do we make sure um, that we are constantly staying in favor with both God and man? How do we make sure that we're staying on mission? And the, one of the things that I love, and I keep, I'm gonna use this statement a lot, I stole it from Drew Moss who preached a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we are so um, aware of who we are and we are so categorized today. So I know exactly who I am. Am I uh, male or female? I'm male. Am I white or am I not white? I'm white. Uh, we were actually, my, we, we took our, our, uh, our son that we adopted from Mexico and we took him to, the, to, to an eye doctor here in town and you know they got that sheet where you have to like do everything, you know? And so she's looking at him and if you haven't met Sergio, he looks Mexican, okay? And so she was asking him like what nationality he was and I, I literally, I said to her, seriously? Like you can't tell Sergio Maris? Like you had, well, I just don't want to assume anything. And I said, well, there are certain things that are probably actually pretty logical that you could assume. And so we laughed about that. We are so careful, aren't we? And we are so aware and we so niche ourselves and we are hypersensitive in our culture, I think. Not just politically correct, but sadly hypersensitive that if it doesn't directly apply to me, if it doesn't directly speak to my circumstances, and I mean nuanced to the nth degree, then somehow it really doesn't fit or it really doesn't apply or you can't speak. And I just think it's sad that we have gotten to that point. Um, I think it's good that the Bible speaks and even though I'm not Timothy and even though I'm not uh, trying to establish a church at Ephesus and even though I'm not um, Drew's comment that he made that I love was, I may not be able to uh, totally understand exactly where you're coming from. I don't, I don't know that, but I do know you. I do know you in Christ. I do know what Christ has said. I do know the gospel. I do know what we share as a common humanity. And so for those reasons, I hope I never pretend to know exactly what you're going through or exactly what you're feeling or exactly where you've come from. That would just be false. But to try to pull us all to the, the basic truths that we know about ourselves and the, the tendencies that we have to wander away from the truth, books like this can be really, really helpful. So last week, Paul got really descriptive about what false teachers look like, and he described them um, as having some serious problems, particularly in the area of greed, money, and taking advantage sexually of people. And so we actually see how this book is going to ultimately end. He's going to give this final charge to Timothy. And so the book is not so much, hey, let me describe all these people over here that you need to be aware of, although he will do that occasionally, but this is what I want you to become. This is what it actually looks like. And here's where I want you to set your mind and set your affection and set your attention on. So verse 11 is where we are going to actually begin. And there are some key words that you will see in this particular text. And whenever you see one, 
you know that there is some kind of a contrast, but one of the famous ones found in Ephesians chapter two, where the apostle Paul describes to the Ephesian church, this is the way you used to live, but God, by his mercy and by his grace set us free, but God made us alive in Christ. So here we are dead, but God has made you alive in Christ. This is what the, so if you look at verse 10 and previously, right, verses three through 10, you've got these strong warnings about what these people are like, and they are greedy, and they are lovers of money, and they are uh, obsessed with themselves, and they are arrogant. This is the way they are, and that is the contrast. Notice this, but you, but as for you, he says, O man of God, now whenever in the Old Testament you will hear someone talk about a man of God, David is referred to as a man of God, Elijah is referred to as a man of God, um, Ezekiel is referred to as a man of God, it's a little bit of kind of lifting them up, O man of God. Um, interestingly enough, the word here that is actually used for man is anthropos, where we would get words like anthropology, the study of man. Um, it's not the specific word for male. So it's, it's, it, instead of it being kind of like this focusing on even on him, man, it's like human. So it's talking about this general trait that Timothy, and I would argue all of us are to have, is that we are people of God. It's a little bit more of a that feel. It's not so much lifting him up and talking about, oh, great man of God, you great, wonderful leader, man of God. It's not that specific. It uses more of a generic term. Whenever the word man of God actually appears in the New Testament, it appears here and it appears in 2 Timothy. Um, it describes it more in the general term, which is a trait that we all should have. One of the things I wanna just kind of hit on tonight that we're gonna talk about over and over and over again is the concern um, that, I, that I'm picking up in our culture where Christian people love to describe how bad they are and how messed up we are and how we're the same as everybody else and there's no, really no difference between us and my neighbor. And, 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 I, and I get where we're coming from. It's almost like we wanna borrow from Paul's theology, Paul I, the chief of all sinners, and we'd love to run with that, right? We, we are so afraid of any kind of arrogance that we talk about just how broken we are and how messed up we are and how we're as messed up as everybody else. I mean, have you heard us talk like that? Right, we do. It's interesting, Paul doesn't talk like that, although he did, you know, I am the chief of sinners. If you go back, I wonder if he's not referring to his previous life. He doesn't seem to be talking about this present tense, I'm a really bad person today. He's talking about, if you look at the context of that, he's talking about where he has come from and the grace of God that brought him to where he is. So I, Paul, the chief of all sinners, found this grace so that I might become this in Jesus Christ. Um, there are churches, denominations, that spend a lot of time and energy focusing on the holiness that we are to be. Um, the holiness we are to have in us and the holiness that we are to exhibit to the world around us. Um, we are not part of one of those movements, uh, the Church of the Nazarene, the early Methodist movement from John Wesley um, really had a strong, strong, strong emphasis on that. Um, there have been certain parts of the, the fundamental uh, Christian movement that, has, that have really tried to emphasize that. Um, it's interesting though, the more we try to, my assessment, the more that we try to reach out into our culture, the more that we're afraid we're gonna distance ourselves from our culture, so the more we begin to if not act like, at least pretend like we're just like our culture. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why people look and say, well, if we're, there's no difference between you and me. I mean, imagine a non-believer hears me. Yeah, there's no difference between you and me. I mean, you're, I'm, I'm, I'm worse than you are. Really? Like you're worse than I am? Oh yeah, I'm worse than you are. So then why do I need Jesus? 
Like, what, what, is, what does he do? Like, how does he, well, he saves us. So, literally, he saves us and never changes us. Well, no, I mean, okay, he does kind of change us, but what I'm trying to say is, oh, you're trying to self-deprecate so that you can, I think it's good for us to be clear, not to make ourselves better, not to pretend. I just, I'm, I'm really catching it, even in myself. I gotta be careful, because what we're going to see here is that the godly man, the man of God, the person who is the image bearer of Jesus Christ is to look different than the world around them. And I think Jesus or the Apostle Paul would say, hopefully knowing our hearts, knowing, well, Paul, we just really don't wanna be arrogant. We just don't wanna somehow think that we're better than. And he'd say, okay, then don't do that. But it may not be the best way to describe the sanctification that is taking place in you. But as for you, O oh man of God, imperative, flee. It literally means to abstain from or to avoid. Flee these things, that points back to verses three through 10, and then pursue. It's interesting, the word flee, fuego, literally could actually just mean to just kind of casually avoid. But because it is attached to this next imperative, pursue, that's why the reason why they will use the word flee. So it's not just abstain, it's not just don't handle, it literally is flee from and pursue. So it's much like the Apostle Paul does in the, in the Colossian letter, we are to kill these things and become these things. We are to put away these things so that we can embrace these things. And it's important to recognize that the Christian life is not just fleeing from, but it is also pursuing. And if all we ever do is flee from sin, then in the end, um, as, as one particular person said, I was teaching a Sunday school class here at the church. Um, this, was, this, was a, this was a pretty interesting moment, and we were talking about the idea of sanctification, and one gentleman in the class actually said, there is a lot of sanctification that preachers take credit for that just happens over time. Now think of what he's saying. There's a lot of sanctification that preachers take credit for that really is just a product or just kind of a, something that's created over time. What's he saying? What he's saying is, is that we all kind of grow up a little bit, don't we? Like when we're young, we drink, and when we're young, we're party, and when we're young, we do that, but then you know what? We kind of go, wow, like I really want to be a successful person, and I, and I can't drink like this all the time. I've got a job to take care of, okay? And I can't, I can't be successful and live like this. I really need to grow up. I real, is, is that sanctification? It's not sanctification. I've often wondered, what would I be like if I was not a follower of Jesus Christ? I, I don't think I'd be the worst person in the world. I think I would live for myself. And I think my life would look a lot like this, minus the sanctification piece. Well, what does that look like? And it really does describe not just the things that I don't do. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I would wrestle with the, the most difficult of sins, so to speak, or the most socially unacceptable sins if I didn't have Christ. I really do. I think I'd be a rather normal, healthy, productive person within society, and I would be lost. That's what happens when people avoid bad things. I hear it in our language. You really need to talk to this friend of mine, and I'll tell you, he's, he's a great guy. He's a great, great guy. You, you, would, you would love to meet him. Like, he barely needs Jesus at all. Like, he's pretty much got it all figured out. 
He, like he is, he's a good godly man, he takes care of his family, he's got a really nice house. Um, he's like a really, really, really nice guy. Just doesn't really have, doesn't believe in God, doesn't want anything to do with God, but other than that small little area of his life, he is a really good guy. I mean, we talk like that, don't we? Like we talk like that. That betrays an understanding that we actually have which says that to be a Christian is to avoid bad things. Contrary to what the scriptures teach, actually. The scriptures are not impressed by people who avoid bad things. The scriptures are impressed by those people who understand who God is and then build their life around that. So we flee from the things described in chapter or earlier in this chapter, and then we pursue, look at this list, righteousness. <laughs> pursue righteousness, this, this, and this is the part where, you know, we, 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 again, we're kind of living in a time when we're so, uh, we, we struggle so much with even phrases or statements like good works, and you're gonna see it a lot in this text. We need to do good works. I need to challenge you to do good works. And as soon as I would start to do that, right, there'd always be, there'd be probably on all of us, on me too, some hair would start to go up on the back of my neck, and I would say, listen, like, I'm already saved. Like, you're telling me if I don't do good works and I'm not saved, you're telling me that I'm saved by my good works? No, none of that. I don't believe any of that. I believe we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. I'm dead without God. Absolutely dead without the work of Christ. I'm dead without the Holy Spirit. I can do nothing that can merit God's love or God's favor. I can do nothing to pull his attention in my way. I can do nothing to kind of win his heart by being a godly person. The best that I can do is nothing but ceremonially religious dirty rags to him. That's what I believe. And yet, we actually see this, what am I to pursue? Righteousness. Doing right things. Righteousness. Godliness. A mark of faith, which is what? Think about that word. A mark of faith is not just, don't, don't just say, specificity is so beautiful. It's not just this faith where he's, well, you know what, he's hopeful. He just really, he just really is just a positive guy. You know, he's one of those faith guys. Okay, what do you mean by that? What faith do you have? I mean, this is the part that I, uh, concerned me on either side of the election. No matter who wins, roughly, I figured, half of the country is gonna be surprised and happy and oh, yay, and the other half would be, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And literally, you just change, the, change it, and it's just different half. And I'm thinking, really? Just that, that, that's where you get your hope from? I could just see it in all of my friends. They were either really, really up or really, really down. What, what, what changed so much? Well, you don't understand, and you could just tell. My hope was built in nothing less. Yeah, not, not in the political system, please. In Jesus' blood and righteousness. So the idea of being a man and pursuing faith is pursuing a trust in God, which means that I know who God is and what God wants. And to be a man or a woman of faith is to know him and then to put your trust in him and then to live that out. It is the most simple and it is the, the most complicated thing we will ever do is to literally live by faith. What does it mean to live by faith? It means, well, this is who God is. And God rewards those people who earnestly seek him. So I live seeking that reward. I just literally, just a few minutes ago, got back from Mexico again, had to do a quick rundown Sunday after church, and we're working on this place, and I had to get back for tonight, and um, just as we're, we're sitting there, and we're just, we're working in this tiny little place, this guy that doesn't have a house, and we're finishing it up for him so that he can have a house, and I just said, you know, it's good for us to remember sometimes that God will reward this. 
And I said to a, just a brother in Christ who went down with us, I said, is that a good thing for us to just want that reward? And the first response that we have, right, because we're good, humble Christian folk, right? No, I really shouldn't want that reward. Right, you know, what I'm coming, you know where I'm coming from on this? I shouldn't really want that reward. And I said, but I think we should actually. You know, there's a difference between me saying, hey, I went to Mexico, God, you owe me, right? There's a difference between that. Somehow, again, taking on a righteousness or a moment in which I trust God and I live by faith, and then all of a sudden I turn that around, and this is where it becomes self-righteousness, and now God owes me. That's not what I'm talking about. To live by faith is to trust in who he is and the plan that he has already described, where he actually says to me, I will reward those who earnestly seek me. And so I seek after him, and then I find him, and I have no idea what the reward is. That's his to determine to me. I have no idea what exactly the reward is when I trust him in my marriage, or I trust him in my relationships, or I trust him in my worship of him, or I trust him in my business dealings, or I trust him in my, uh, the way I, I, I work with my neighbors, the way I trust him all the way through my life. He is the one that will work out what that reward is going to look like. I have no idea what it'll look like but the Bible actually teaches that he will. You see the difference? And this is what a person by faith does. Just read Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 walks through this wonderfully. It describes these great people by faith who what? Who literally endured difficulties, who stayed on track, who, who did not give in to the temptations around them. Why? Because they knew that God would ultimately one day set everything right and they trusted in him. That's what it means to put your faith in him. And so every time, I was like, God, man, I just, I'd really like to you know, get this extra money so that we can just, and I'm not trying to be greedy, but man, we could just really, really use it. And I just, I don't wanna mention that this thing on my car is not working right and they'll never really know and it probably won't go bad. And I just, you know what, I'm not gonna say anything. Who's gonna know? Yeah. There was this one part that I had to texture in this guy's house and there was this kind of this, this area, and it was on top of this, uh, top of his bathroom, had this sloping part, and we're trying to texture it, and I, get, I, get, I just get in my own head, and I'm going, do I have to crawl on top of that and then back up into there and then texture that back corner? So I'm looking around, there's nobody around except for the Lord, and so I'm literally talking out loud, do I have to crawl up there? I am just gonna get covered in mud. Do I have to get up there and do that? Do I have to get back in that corner? Why, you think, I don't even think that Che can see it. Seriously, he's never gonna get up there and it'll be painted, it'll look just, and then I just, I just felt like, get up there, get up there and just do it. Who's gonna see it? The one that matters, right? Small things, big things, who's gonna see it? So this is what it means to live by faith. And then obviously the one that Paul loves to talk about faith and then love, steadfastness, which is, you know, it's easy to be faithful for a, I was faithful for a whole day. I was faithful for actually for a whole weekend. I was faithful for that steadfastness is just staying on track for a long period of time. And then the one that surprises us that we very seldom talk about, but gentleness. Paul talks about it more than you would ever imagine. Uh, even in Galatians chapter six, when the apostle Paul talks about restoring a brother or a sister who is caught in sin, those of you who are mature, you don't just let anyone try to restore somebody. Those of you who are mature, Paul says, restore your brother, it could be sister as well, gently. 
And then he goes on to say, and do so so that you do not become proud. The fall, the, 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 the idea of being trapped when you're helping a brother or sister in sin is that, is that pride will creep in. I would never have done that. I would have never have struggled with that. I never would have failed in that. That's what we do, right? Apostle Saul says, be very, very careful. How do you be careful? Notice how quickly that arrogance and pride go side by side, don't they? And what goes beside gentleness? Humility. Humility. So, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Verse 12, we know this phrase, fight the good fight of faith. So the word there for fight is used is a word that is used more in athletic competitions than it is like the battlefield. It's not necessarily war imagery as much as it is athletic imagery. So fight, what kind? The good fight of faith. And then he says, take hold, epilambano. It means to, to grab, to receive, to, to take fully. Take hold of the eternal life. So notice what he is describing here. He's gonna be talking about life in a number of different contexts. You can see me kind of connect it with the orange there. Take hold of eternal life. So it's not just, it's, it's not just a matter of um, hold on now and then when you die, you'll get eternal life. It's take hold of eternal life. It's a, literally the tense is known as the aorist tense. It's a snapshot. It's, it's taking a picture. It's just describing a way that it is. Timothy, right now what I'm asking you to do is take hold of that life of that eternal life. I love to remind people that one of the reasons why I wanna know about God and one of the reasons why I wanna serve God now is because this is a part of my eternal life. And so to know him is something that will always matter. I think a lot of people don't really take in the joy of knowing the Lord or serving the Lord or even being with brothers and sisters in Christ is because they don't understand that this will go on and on and on and on and then we'll die and then it will go on and 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 into, into eternity. And when you have that kind of perspective that for me to know him isn't just for this life, for me to serve him isn't just for this life, to me to be faithful is not just in this life but I am taking hold of, by this pursuing of these godly things, I'm taking hold of eternal life, he says, to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession. Now, commentators go crazy on this statement of the good confession um, because as you see here, they're going to compare it to the confession that Jesus Christ gives before Pontius Pilate. And I wanna talk about two different ideas of, of a way you can understand what he means by the good confession. But he says, take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so there has been a confession, a homologeo, a, a way of speaking. And I would say the primary way that you're talking about here is the idea of allegiance to Jesus. So when we talk about the, the, the process of salvation, that we hear the gospel and we believe the gospel and we repent of our wrong-mindedness, um, and then we confess Jesus Christ. It's not confess our sins. That actually would be more in the repenting aspect of things, right? But then there is this confession. So now who do you swear allegiance to? I swear allegiance to Jesus Christ. And then we are joined with him in baptism, and then we are filled with the Holy Spirit. This is kind of the process of salvation that we actually see. And so you have this confession. Whose are you? I'm, I'm Jesus's, that's who I am. Um, it's, that's 
there was a young lady who was in our Tuesday Bible study who recently felt a need. She was deeply convicted by our study through Hebrews and who Jesus Christ was. It was a beautiful thing, deeply, deeply convicted and said, I think I need to be baptized again. I get this a lot, actually. Well, why do you need to be baptized again? I said, I want, to, I, want to, I want you to hear this. Explain this to me. And she just said, boy, I mean, I just, I've been studying and I've been going to this class and I just, I've just got a deep, have you ever had one of these? Like a, just a profound understanding, like a shocking, a jarring understanding of who Jesus Christ is in such a way that you feel like right now you didn't know him before. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's just so profound. She had one of those. I've had probably about eight of those in my lifetime, actually. I've had a number of those where it's like, wow, I just, I feel him, I sense him, I know him in a completely different way. And so she said, I think I need to do this. And so I began to ask her, well, have you been baptized before? And she said, yes. And I said, did you understand what you were doing? And she said, yes. And I said, well, what were you doing? Well, I was being joined with him. I was being united with him in baptism. But, but, but I don't even know, but, but now I know him so much more. And now my mind is being so much more transformed. And I just want people to know just how much I love him and how much I want to follow him. And I said, did you hear what you just said? What you need to do is not this one. What you get to do are these ones over and over again. Like you don't, you're not saying I really need to be joined to him again. What you're actually saying is what? I need to continue to change my mind and follow him about who he is. I need to make sure that others know the truth about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for me. And I wanna just profess yet once again my allegiance to him. Um, we get it a little bit in our culture, um, and when we think about our, we pledge allegiance to the flag, or we pledge allegiance to the sorority, or we pledge allegiance to this university, right? At the end of every football game, we pledge allegiance to our alma mater, right? Okay, that's what we do. So we get that a little bit in our culture. Um, this would be very, very true, not only to political leaders, but all the way down to religious leaders. So it would matter at a kind of at a, at a religious level. We don't do that a lot, actually. Um, one of the reasons why is because the devil has convinced us, sadly, um, that instead of the idea of it being a personal faith, which I believe my, my faith is personal, it deeply affects my person, it's changed my person, so it's personal, but it's definitely not private. This was a big win for the devil, was when faith became private. When you have that privatized faith, that was a win for him. Man, he was really on, working on all cylinders there. When you have a private faith, and all of a sudden you have no confession, no confession necessary. So it's not just the confession that we actually see in baptism, but an ongoing allegiance. Jesus actually says, he who denies me before others, I will deny before my Father. He who what? Confesses me before others, I will confess before my Father. And so he's actually describing this good confession that Timothy has made some time in his life in which he has done it in the presence of many witnesses. He says, I charge you, and this idea of presence is going to be a big deal. He does it in the presence of many witnesses. So I now charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and Jesus Christ. Now watch, he's gonna kind of You've got to follow the Jesuses and the gods here. And I, I, I wonder sometimes if Paul isn't trying to blend these so closely together because every time we try to pull Jesus and God apart, it seems like they just, they come back together. 
Okay, so you gotta be really careful just making them these two separate things. No, they're, they're intrinsically tied together as well. So notice what he says here. In the presence of God who gives life to all things and to Christ Jesus, Christ meaning his, uh, his title first, Messiah Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, the confession about himself. This is who I am, Pontius Pilate. Um, do you know who I am? Do you remember this confession that he makes? This is who I am, Pilate. You think that you have power over me? Well, if it wasn't, <laughs> you think you have power? Do you have any idea who gave you the power? Do you have any idea who allowed you to be? Do you know who's the one really running this show, Pilate? And P Jesus makes a very profound proclamation in terms of who he is. So he makes the, Jesus makes the primary confession, and then we all make connection or professions of faith, confessions about Jesus that tie us to who he said he is. So Jesus says, I am the Messiah, and we say we wanna be of the Messiah. We are following the Messiah. His confession and our confession. Testimony before Pontius Pilate, he made the good confession, verse 14, to keep, and so now we're going back to what he wants Timothy to do. In the presence of God, I want you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he had Christ Jesus focusing on his title, now focusing on his person, Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Now let me kind of break this down. So he says, listen, Timothy, what I want you to do is I, I, I charge you right now in the presence of God and in the presence of Jesus, who made, by the way, a great confession, the primary confession in which all other confessions come in, what I want you to do is keep the commandment. Keep the commandment. Now, what, what is the commandment? A lot of people are wondering, okay, so where is the commandment? What is, what is Paul telling Timothy to do? And I love this. I really believe the commandment is 1 Timothy. Timothy, I want you to keep the instructions of this letter. And he's going to summarize it right here. These, these are two adjectives that are used to describe the commandment. And the first one is unstained. And the second one is free from reproach. Unstained and free from reproach. So what I would like to do is I wanna take a look at this word unstained because it's kind of an interesting word. Again, going back to, we've already talked about this a little bit, that we, we, we love to profess just how broken we are. Well, here he's telling him that I want you to keep your uh, keep your confession unstained, and notice what this word appears in a couple of other texts. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. First Peter chapter 1, verse 19. talking about what we inherit from Jesus Christ and talking about what Jesus Christ does for us. And he says in verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It's literally referring back to the lamb that is, that is spotless, has no stain upon it, it has no mark against it. And ultimately it's describing who Jesus Christ is. And what he's saying is, Timothy, I want you to I want you to, to live, I charge you to keep the commandment like that, unstained, unblemished. The second one I want you to look at is James chapter one, verse 27. James chapter one, verse 27. 
thought this was an interesting way that this word was used. Religion that is pure and unblemished or undefiled in the ESV, it's the same word. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained where it appears again from the world. To be unstained from the world, unblemished and unstained. Um, And so this becomes the call of us who are followers of Jesus, that we follow the commandment so that we do not have the stains of the world on us. Last one, back to Peter. We'll look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 14, 2 Peter 3, verse 14. Kind of right near the end of Peter's letter as they're waiting for the judgment. They're a, they're a, a persecuted church in Rome um, who are being challenged and encouraged to not get caught up in the things of this world. Peter says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, the promises, Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent. Um, Again, it's something that we we try to, we focus on this for our high school kids, right? You really, you gotta be careful how how you live. You really gotta be careful. You gotta keep yourself pure. Really gotta keep yourself pure. Till when? Ah, till marriage, and then you can do whatever you want. It's kind of how it works. That's not how it works. We, we're all to be, like, what are, what, are, what, are, what are we doing? We are working to live unblemished, unstained from the ways of this world, an unstained life. So he says, this is what I want you to do, Timothy. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, which is the same phrase that he actually uses to describe the elders in 1 Timothy 3. That means there can be no accusation made against you. So what accusations could you make? Now, here's one thing that I want you to be aware of is that how this works, and this is absolutely critical for you to kind of remember how this actually fits together. Um, How many of you have done something bad in your past that really is a a stain um, or a kind of a reproach? Anybody? It's just me? Okay, me and Tom. Okay, Tom feels kind of awkward now. It's just you and me, brother, that are telling the truth. Um, So when you have this... So you have the you have the incident you have the you have the blemish right you have the blemish and then you repent of that and then you are forgiven and you are clean and it's good for you to remember that I just, I know a lot of people that still live blemished. And I wanna ask you, like have you repented of that? Like have you, have, you, have you turned from that? Yes, okay, then what are you? You are now without blemish. And you need to hold on to that. I mean, think about it. Did the Apostle Paul have any accusation you could give against him? Yeah, like lots. There are lots of accusations that you could lead against the Apostle Paul. But what could you say? What could you say to, to him now? Well, you know what you were before Christ? Well, you know what you used to do before you gave, you know what you used to do? Do, do, you, do you remember that way that you used to live before you literally recognized what you were doing and turned and repented? 
Yeah, I totally remember. I was there. Yeah, hurt a lot of people. Totally forgiven by that. Any other questions? It is amazing what this does. It is so critical in every aspect of the life. And for us to then bring up in a way is actually not what Paul is talking about. I deal with this, go think about this in the elder camp. Um, I, I, we deal with this when we, we meet somebody and hey, we'd like to talk to you about being an elder. Well, you know, I'll tell you, there's some things I've done way back in my past that I'm, you know, just really hurt by or whatever. And okay, I totally get that. So do we need to talk about this? Like are these things that are ongoing? Well, no, but I just wanna make sure. Oh, no, I, I really do. I, I appreciate the transparency. I appreciate the honesty. I appreciate, but this isn't a part of who you are now. Oh, no, 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 it's not a part of who I am now. Okay, so you're living a life above reproach. Well, yeah, okay, well, that's, that's exactly what Paul's talking about. What, what accusation could they make against us? And I love it. If they can make accusations that point back to the past, what do we do? This is what I love about it. Yeah, that was me. Yeah, I did that. Yeah, I used to live like that. Yeah, I was pretty messed up. I really was. Let me tell you about what changed out all of that. His name was Jesus. It was amazing. And I came in, I understood who he was. I understood that the way that I was living and the way that I was, I, I was dealing with my relationships, the way that I was dealing in business, the way that I was, like it was just absolutely jacked up. It was just wrong and it was selfish and it was, I mean, it was just really, really bad. But then boy, he changed my life and he changed my mind and I've given my life to him and this is what it looks like. And man, it's not like I've lived it perfectly all the way through, but man, he has totally set my life in a different direction. Well, we can have a past conversation if you want to. I'm more than glad to talk about my past. Okay, you wanna talk about my past? I'll talk about my past, but my past is forgiven. Right, why? Because I gave it to Jesus. And I can't tell you how critical it is, okay? So when I start talking about, hey guys, we gotta be holy, we gotta be holy, and then there's some of us that start holding our heads a little lower. What's wrong? Are you involved in something? No, but I was. I get it. Okay, but... We can't keep bringing these things up. Are you in it? No, then we need to, hear me, I think it's even good to go back and talk about the brokenness, right? I'm not saying let's never talk about, we're not afraid to deal with our past, right? We're not gonna, don't, wanna, don't ever mention anything bad I ever did because I'm a really sensitive, no. The power of Jesus Christ now lives in me and I can talk honestly about my brokenness because I know that I have been forgiven and there's no accusation against me. So I can talk about, I'm actually free to talk about my past. Why? Because I'm forgiven. I'm not held slave to it. I'm not afraid of it. That's what the Apostle Paul wants in his people, people of God. And so he's describing this unstained, free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. That's where we aim. Verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. So God is uh, kind of the picture is, and Jesus will say the same things, God is holding back Jesus until the time is set, and then Jesus Christ will come, and everything will be made right. And then it's gonna go off on the he, and is the he Jesus or is the he God? It is most likely God, um, but obviously this is where the attributes begin to line up a little bit, right? So here he goes off, kind of like a bit of a doxology. He's gonna start almost singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. So here's what it is. He who is the blessed, the one who is blessed. So ordinary, we talk about us in this way, but God himself is blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, uh, or Ephesians chapter one talks about just how powerful and how great God is. To be blessed, uh, kind of the way that it's meant here means to be praised. The blessed, 
the only sovereign. <laughs> He's going to use a couple of onlys here. Um, of all the ones completely in control, he is the only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, you need to know that the idea of sovereign, ruler, and the idea of king of kings and lord of lords were actually phrases that other political leaders were using during this time period-ish. They were making claims about this, but Paul and Jesus in the Revelation is going to make very similar claims about himself. Who am I? I am the sovereign. I am the king of kings. I am the lord of lords. Who alone is immortal. Now, don't tell Oklahoma State University because they think they are too, right? We, we know about this. We sing that proud and immortal, we herald your fame. We, we, we know that part of the song. So um, you want to add here, for where it says who alone, put who besides OSU as alone is immortal. So the immortality of God, which if you were to say what this means, the word manos is actually found in there. Actually, I do believe that God is the only one who is immortal. And you know what that means? We'll never die. That's what the idea of the immortal is. It's not it's not everlasting, it's, it's just, well, I guess it's everlasting that way. It just means we'll never die. We'll always live, and he's the only one that is immortal. The only one. Who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or even can see. Interesting, there are seven attributes that are listed here. Paul's not one to do sevens, as in complete or whole, but there are seven adjectives that are listed here in terms of describing him. Who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor, which is what we give the sovereign, and the eternal dominion, which is what we give the sovereign. So honor and dominion is what we give him. So Timothy, in light of, and this is the idea, in light of who he is, this is what I'm calling you to do, and this is what I'm calling you to be. I think it's interesting that we spend a lot of time debating or talking about this. And the more that I look at it, I can read one book and I think, yeah, we really need to talk more about what we need to do. And then I'll read another book and it says, no, 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 you really need to talk about what you need to be. And I'll go, oh, that's right, it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. And then the way that you are is what you do. And, but really, it's kind of what you do that makes you who you are. But then who you are is what makes you what you do. And then... And I think Paul would go, why are you having to pick one? Why don't you just recognize how both of them fit beautifully together? It's a little bit like one of the reasons why we have that way of understanding go, gather, grow is because we consider them to be like happening at the same time. Like as we grow in our understanding of who God is and obedience to him, we gather together and we live missionally in the world. And as we live missionally in the world, we actually grow in our understanding and obedience to who he is. Like they fold in on one another. And so Paul in this book is telling Timothy, this is what I want you to do, this is what I want you to do, this is who you are, this is who you are. Which by the way, is the way that we instruct people in how to be followers of Jesus Christ. This is who you are, this is what we do. This is who you are, this is what we do. This is who you are, this is what we do. Just make sure you tie them together. I think going back to something even as, as, as simple or as applicational as parenting, right? This is what my dad did really, really well was he just spent a lot of time reminding me of who I was and then therefore what I did. Like remember son, like remember when you gave your life to Christ and you were, you were dead, remember that? You remember when you were baptized and you were dead? And I said yeah, and then you were raised to walk a different life and you put on Christ, you remember that? Yes sir. Okay, well then go live out that. Don't live out some kind of crazy 16-year-old Canadian boy thing. Remember who you are. Not like a 
totally fixed it. But I'll tell you, it really did kind of guide me along the way. I would say it was one of the most convicting things because my dad never really had this, you know you're doing bad things, right? My dad was, we don't act like that. We don't talk like that. We don't behave like that. We don't treat people like that. We don't speak like that. And that was really kind of a helpful thing. So why don't we do that, Dad? Well, because of who we are. And the more that you can with those that you love around you, and I would even say this works everywhere, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, parents to grandkids, kids to grandparents. Hey, Grandpa, we don't talk like that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just important for we see the, the blending of those. Now, I thought this was interesting. On Sunday, I'm preaching from Matthew 19 as we move on from the complicated subjects about you know, sexuality and manhood and womanhood, and we're gonna talk about God's instructions to rich people, an, an easy topic. Uh, I thought it was interesting that here we are ending 1 Timothy on, this, on a similar topic. Verse 17, as for the rich, and it says this, in this present age, so we've seen earlier, take hold of eternal life, Timothy. Take hold of that which will go on forever. Take hold of it right now. And then he kind of takes it into another statement. Hey, listen, there are those who are rich, but by the way, they're rich in this present age. I love the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And this, this poor man named Lazarus. The rich man, we don't even know his name. Lazarus, we know his name. His commentators like to make a big deal about that. Because to be named is to have value and worth. And to be unnamed is to be a nobody. And we've got this rich guy, who cares who he is, and then Lazarus. And Lazarus is kind of at the gate, and this rich man would just probably walk by him numerous times, maybe even help him out occasionally. And then they go to two different places for eternity. And I, I love what that, in that text in Luke 16, it really describes it. Well, no, you had your time. You had your time, you, you enjoy it? Did you enjoy it? How long did you have? Did you have like 40 years? Wow, you had 40 years. That's pretty impressive. Now, now eternity is gonna really, really bite, but you had 40 years. Congratulations. The Bible speaks like that. The Bible talks like that. You need to remember that this life is not all there is. That's the approach for suffering. That's the approach for faithfulness and steadfastness. As for the rich in this present age. So think of this. In Ephesus, there were people that had probably tremendous wealth. There were a number of very wealthy Christians who then come to Christ and go, hey, does God change? Like, does our attitude about this change too? Like, does our sexual ethic change? Yes. Does our business ethic change? Yes. Does the way that we, like, treat our wealth and act in accordance with our wealth, does that change? And the answer is yes. What does it say? As for the rich, charge them. Command them. And I love this, because here's what our world loves to do, right? Our world loves to command rich people to give, to give, right? I come from a country that loves to emphasize that. And my dad and I love to get into big, long debates about it. But it's interesting, like what, 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 what Paul does with Timothy here is not, hey, they need to feel bad for being rich, hey, you know what, they really need, it's, it's not that. Look at, look, at what, look at what he does here. I thought this is very interesting. He just says, charge them not to be, and ESV uses the word haughty. It literally, it means arrogant. Like, to be proud and to be prideful, which happens pretty easily to those of us with means. Because what? Wealth brings independence. 
Like, do you remember what it was like when you were like really dependent on your parents or really dependent on somebody? You had to be really careful of what you said? Man, because I kind of I need them. But imagine if you didn't need anybody. Imagine if you could take care of yourself. You didn't need anybody. You could say whatever you wanted to your boss. You could say whatever you wanted to your friends. You could say whatever you wanted. Imagine if you could say whatever you wanted because you, you got it. You got yourself. You're okay with this. Pride and arrogance comes naturally from people who are independent, self-sustaining people. It just has to happen that way. I have to be arrogant and prideful. Why? Because I'm independent. The, the, the two come like right beside one another. So what, what is the command? It's not, don't you dare be rich. What is it? Don't be arrogant. You really need to remember that there is a God. Do not be arrogant. And do not set your hope. A couple of great texts found in 1 Timothy 4.10 and 1 Timothy 5.5 5, where it is describing two other people who are told not to set their hope. One of them being widows. Good widows do not set their hope on wealth. Do not set your hope on wealth. Why? Because they are uncertain, the uncertainty of riches. And think especially in this time period when they would be incredibly uncertain. All you need is a different army to walk through and everything's gone. What are you gonna do? Take, them to, take the Roman Empire to court? They are the court. So what, what could you really do? Might makes right. That's the way this world would have worked. The uncertainty, and, and also think about this, like the riches you had to like hold on to or maintain for the most part. Like most people had to have their wealth with them. Can't just, I don't know, it's in a TD Ameritrade account somewhere. No, 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 you have to have it with you. Are you watching your wealth? Talk to people in Africa, are you watching? It's why everybody's got these big fences and big gates. Because why? Because man, someone could take it. The uncertainty of riches, and then this but is a very strong uh, contrasting, it's not, they're, they're kind of different um, there are different contrasting words in the Greek, and this one's a strong one, Allah. But, don't set it on uncertainty of riches, but on God. And then I love this, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. <laughs> this is, goes back to what Timothy teaches us, right? God gives us things for what purpose? Why does God give us wealth? Why does God give us all of these good things? One of them, clearly, is to what? to enjoy. It's the same word, Hebrews eleven twenty five. It's the same word, actually. Interesting left, only found twice in the New Testament. It's the same word that Moses did not hold on to the enjoyment of the things, but he gave them up so that he might do a thing of God. It's the same word, actually. So here, it's Moses did not focus on this enjoyment, but God actually gives us those things for that same kind of enjoyment. Now here's the problem. Christians that I meet feel guilty about enjoying the good things that God has provided. And you don't need to feel guilty about enjoying the good things that God has provided as long as it is received with thanksgiving and praise and it ends up in not pride and arrogance. It doesn't end up in a, kind of in a self-centered, self-focused way, but it ends up in the worship of God. Isn't God good? Look at what God has done. Look at what God has given us. Is not God good? Man, it's not God good that he gave us so much that not only do we have this, but we can share that. See, that's the kind of life that God wants us to not only enjoy, but also to then share with others. So God provides us this, so what do we do? We don't trust our wealth, we don't trust our ability to make wealth, 
Um, I, I, I didn't know a couple, but I knew of a, of a campus minister at the University of Missouri, and he, there was a couple that he worked with for a number of years, and I don't remember exactly how many years um, they would do this, but they, they would work and work and work and work and work, and then they would literally like reset. They would sell everything, and they would give it to this campus pastor, and then he would give the money to somewhere else in the world. And they would say, yeah, I mean, we got great jobs and we've got all these things, but we, we love to zero out every like 10 years or whatever it was. Because we can just make all this money. And so it's just kind of a really good thing. So it just kind of just reminds us just that we always need to be dependent on God. I'm going, that's wild. So what do we do? I mean, here's a here's question I want to just leave you with. You're going to think about it. It's not the last thought, but I want to give you this. Like, if I were to say to you, don't trust you, don't trust your wealth, don't trust your ability, like, trust in God. Like, what does that look like for you? Does it actually look like anything? Or do I just say it, and we think about it for a second, and then we just go home? Like, Paul is telling Timothy to command the rich, which I think would kind of be us, I think, I think it's probably a little overstated that we're way wealthier than everybody back then. That's probably not the total case, but per capita, I think that would be, yeah, we're clearly more of the wealthy. Um, definitely in terms of our means, like we never have to pray for daily bread, right? We have a lot stored up around us and in us, right? We got a lot. So when you look at it, but how do we not set our hopes on the uncertainty, but on God? And the thing that I keep coming back to and how we even see it in here is kind of how we understand the advance of the kingdom. And he gives some instruction right here. So what do we do? Listen, it's nothing wrong with enjoying it, verse 18. So what do we tell the rich people to do? Look at this. They are to do good. Literally, um, the word is like good work. The command is they do good work. They do good work, and they are rich in good works. Do you, get, do you see the redundancy in this? Literally, it's, I thought it was the same phrase twice. It's not. It's they are to, to do good work and then to do works that are good. That's how important it is. This is what we do if we have the means. Be rich in good works, which is the same instruction he actually gives widows. Don't worry about your wealth, women. Don't be worried about your wealth, but be rich in good works. Be generous and be ready to share. I wrote the Greek word underneath there. I know that probably not a lot of you can read the Greek, but it actually, it is from the word like koinonia. Do you guys know the word koinonia? Have you ever heard that word? It's like a real popular churchy word. It means fellowship. It means fellowship, the koinonia, the gathering together, okay? The church would share, gather together. And that's what the word is for ready to share is like a derivative of that. So why do we share? The idea of sharing is actually in the context of fellowship. So we just, we look around, we see the needs that are happening all around us. We look at what I have and I'm just like, it's crazy that I have this when you don't, when you don't have this. You need this, I don't need this. And this is what the rich people are to do. They're to look at what they have and go, I don't need this. Would you, does anybody else need this? I don't need this. Does anybody else need this? Why? Well, because God will take care of us. God will watch us. In light of what he's done for me, right? This is the, this is the, paradigm of Christian living is that we live like God lived for us. If God has done this for me, then what should I do for those around me? See how that's so different than you're rich and you need to feel bad. You're rich, you need to give it all up. No, what is it? It's about fellowship. 
It's about responding with enjoyment with the things that we actually have. It's about doing good things. Good works have just taken a bad rap for a long time. And maybe rightly so, because there was a lot of self-righteousness. And we still need to fight against self-righteousness. But this book cares a lot about us doing good works. And as a church, we need to do good works. What does Jesus actually say? That the world might see us doing good works and what? Praise our Father who is in heaven. Jesus calls us to do the exact same thing. So why do we do this? Verse 19, if you want a really good savings account, thus storing up a treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that, this is a very strong purpose clause in the Greek, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Literally, life indeed. So if you really want life, store up for yourselves things where there is certainty. And that is with God. That is in heaven. It's doing good to those around us. And Paul ends with this command. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. So we've been given this, this, this gospel. We've been given this truth. We've been given this, this understanding. Guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. One last time, he says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Literally, pseudo Genice, meaning false knowing, or it's actually falsely called knowing. So there are those people that love to talk about how smart they are, about like to pretend how smart they are. They love to talk about all these visions they've had from God. They're super spiritual people. And Paul says, avoid those people like the plague. That's falsely called knowledge. And then he says in verse 21, for by professing, where there's also kind of a synonym for the word promise, by promising, by professing these things, it has made some either deviate or miss, other ways that word can be translated, or to swerve from the faith. So Timothy, stay on track, steadfast to the end. And Paul ends like he always ends, grace be with you.